Well, given everything that's going on around us, it's hard to neglect such an important story that happens within our parasha. It's so brief that it's open to many interpretations. I'm going to share a few. The line begins, Miriam Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married. He married a Cushite woman. Our rabbis of blessed memory disagreed with each other about much of what's going on in this cryptic verse, but they agreed on three things. They agreed that Cushite means black-skinned, that Miriam is the one speaking here, not Aaron, because the singular verb agrees with her, and that Miriam is standing up for the rights of her sister-in-law, Tzipporah, Moses' wife. The context is that Moses has been sexually abstinent in order to remain in a state of ritual purity, so to commune with God. Presumably, he's moved out of his tent long ago, we haven't heard about any more children, and gone to live permanently in his little tent of meeting, where he communes with God in solitude, ready at all times to receive divine communications. Sipor is essentially an aguna, a woman deprived of her rights, abandoned but not given the legal rights even of divorce, raising their two children alone. Miriam is pleading for Tzipora's marital rights or conjugal rights and the justice due her from Moses. For this, God seems to strike her with punishment, though we're not sure why it's a crime to do what she did, even if it does involve Moses himself. Interestingly, even though this is what the rabbis actually agree on, that's not the explanation I've heard circulated in Hebrew schools and in casual Shabbos conversation. I heard Miriam was punished for calling Tzipora black as a derogatory term. Miriam, we have been told, was a gossip, which is a label women are often given, even though I find that men are worse at it, and presumably a racist. And so that's why God punished her. Let's move on. How did we get here from what she said and what we agree on to that? Miriam, our hero, our prophetess, our remarkable model, eras ahead of its time of an unmarried career woman, and now clearly our advocate for a black woman's rights, she's known as the racist. So many of us can relate. It seems that it's very hard to say anything about justice without being perceived as saying or doing the wrong thing, especially when race is involved. Miriam was standing up for the rights of her black sister and became known in some quarters thanklessly as a racist. And the timing of the section of this Torah is remarkable. Just last week, I was seriously considering canceling our Equal Rights Weekend celebrating the success of the women's suffrage movement and Jewish women's involvement in it. Given the context of our need to be mindful and address racial injustice in our country, it seemed wrong to celebrate the rights of white women. I came to learn that the women's suffrage movement excluded and sold out women of color for the sake of political expediency, largely, and I was left feeling that these women standing up for women's justice were actually racist. It sounded that way, just maybe as it sounds like that way with Miriam, but what I did not know and what I was grateful for in Professor Carly Goldman's presentation to us is that the women's suffrage movement largely began as the women's abolitionist movement, basically the earliest form of black rights matters. It was women standing up for the rights of black slaves, male and female, 
But when they saw they weren't taken seriously, they decided they needed a political voice. They needed the vote. As those with Miriam, I was pointing the finger of racist at women's advocates who were actually part of this earliest American form of Black Lives Matter. It's a striking synchronicity between Torah and 2020. Uh, they spoke out and this is how they remembered. And by the way, that's also what's referred to in uh, Tisi Nakot's book, where he says that he makes those women in the women's suffrage movement part of his pantheon because he doesn't need them all to be perfect or to be blameless. Who the people in his pantheon are the people who are warriors. Why does Miriam use, so what's this up with the term Kushite? Why does she use the term Kushite to describe her sister-in-law? Now we get into the rabbis. Rabbi, Rashi explains that Kushite means beautiful and originally referred to dark-skinned Africans. By calling her Kushite, Miriam is calling attention to her beauty and calling Moshe back to her bed. Sipora, a Midianite, and therefore dark-skinned, like the people from what is today Yemen and Arabia, is black and she's a beautiful. Picking up on a, in a different way, Rashi's grandson, the Rashbam, the 11th century Samuel Ben Mayer, he picks up on a different legend and argues that it refers to a new dark-skinned African woman Moshe has married as a second wife, the famous legend of the Kushite princess, thus reminding everyone of this legend that our greatest prophet had not one black wife, but two. Rashi quotes an earlier, but now Rashi quotes an earlier Midrash that Miriam would have heard her friend Sipora watch as the male elders left for their prophesying retreat and overheard her saying to the other women, woe to their wives, they won't see their husbands anymore. Those who serve on synagogue boards and other boards know exactly what we're talking about. The woman of color who has little voice in Torah is here given a voice by the rabbis and it is one of deep compassion. Rashi faces the perplexing question of why Miriam's punished at all. And it's not accidental, or is it, that by using a term meaning dark skin, she's punished by having her skin turn white. After all, Rashi points out, she didn't mean to defame Moses. That wasn't her intention. She was merely seeking justice for her sister. So Rashi concludes that this is the message of the Parsha. We can learn from this that if Miriam is wrong to use her words with the best intentions, Woe to those of us who use our words with the intention to actually question someone's character. In other words, Miriam's not the problem, we are. She was speaking up for justice, but what are we speaking up for when we, often on the sidelines, snipe and critique those who are actually speaking up? What's the intent of our commentary on them? Is it justice or are we questioning them for their leadership character? What change are we doing in our commentary on the words of others? So let's go back to Rashi. Is it Dainu for me that we learned that black was slang for beautiful? Is it enough for me that he points out that beautiful and Kushai, beautiful and black, have the same numerical gematria value? So that in God's eyes, black and beautiful are equivalent? Is it enough for me that our tradition celebrates rather than is embarrassed by Sipor and Moses's? very possibly interracial marriage. You know, I want it to be, but I have to admit it's not. It's not enough for me. Because then Rashi has to say, perhaps the derivation is that black means, it means beautiful, but it isn't actually beautiful. He says, maybe it comes from the idea that Kushite is slang for a woman who is as beautiful as a Kushite is black. 
Well, just when we all cringe that black isn't beautiful and by implication, Sipora isn't dark skinned perhaps, Rashi considers that dark skin could actually mean ugly. And he quotes a rabbinic midrash that suggests that people would use the word to ward off the evil eye. So by saying your baby is ugly, your baby is black, you would ward off the evil spirits, the angel of death who had taken notice of a compliment and seek to do you ill. I want you to know that we are not alone in being crushed by this suggestion. The great 11th century Spanish rabbi Ibn Ezra, in many ways Rashi's better, living in Northern Spain in a country with more people of color is horrified by it. And he says the whole evil eye explanation by Rashi is ridiculous and wrong. He says that black is purely a compliment and it definitely refers to Tsipora. She's black and she's beautiful, period. So am I happy that Rashi opened his mouth or not? One more commentary. The 12th century French rabbinic commentator, Joseph Ben Isaac, known as the Bechorshore, adds that it's not accidental that the famous Torah declaration of Moses's humility occurs in the next verse. Moses, he argues, was the most humble person in the world as evidenced by his not being too proud to marry a black woman. I can't tell whether I wanna celebrate this commentary or if I'm horrified by it. On the one hand, he is actually, if you read it, he is literally calling out white Jewish Europeans for the evil pride that goes into forbidding their family members from interracial marriage. But at the same time, I feel like that could be read like Moses is doing some lowly thing. And I confess that doesn't sit well with me at all. And he goes on to say something very powerful and equally disconcerting. He adds that marrying a black woman was part of God's plan, one whose divine intent will be revealed at a future time. That sounds right to me, as we celebrate the increasing percentage of Jews of color, and actually they've been here all along. Or maybe it's about bringing Torah's call to justice to all people of color in our time. And so maybe it's the most important thing I say in this Devar Torah, is his words. That marrying a black woman and their offspring becoming the Levites was a revelation carrying a divine message for us in our time. Or maybe I'm supposed to be embarrassed by what he said because maybe he's saying that interracial marriage is so inscrutable that even the rab wisest rabbi of his time cannot figure it out. So take it, let it be solved in the future. What we learned from this is that it is a thankless job to try to find the right words when it comes to issues of race. No matter what one says, one feels almost immediately that it can be misinterpreted or perhaps will reveal genuine problems that are built into our ways of thinking about the issues. Miriam is punished for calling Sipora beautiful with only in the intent that the founder of Judaism move back in with her and make more babies. Rashi almost says black is beautiful and certainly doesn't quite get there. And that's sad, but it's not sad that he's berated by the other commentators. That's reassuring. The Bekor Shores says it must be part of the divine plan for Moses to be interracially married, but we're left scratching our heads whether that maybe also doesn't sound a little bit racist. I think we're all in the rabbi's shoes today. At least I feel that way. As I mentioned earlier, our on Shavuot, on e-Jewish philanthropy, some folks were trying to show support for activists by stressing the significance 
over the increasing percentage of Jews of color among us. While some Jews of color said that sounded tokenish and they'd rather not be thought of as a percentage, they'd rather be thought of as family. The National Poetry Foundation, the largest in America for poetry, released a statement expressing solidarity with Black Lives Matters and was accused in a petition signed by 1800 poets <clears throat> that it was insufficient. Its president and board president have tendered their resignations. The comic Dave Chappelle just broadcast, pardon me, <clears throat> an impromptu stand-up tirade in support of Black Lives Matters in response to being called out by name as having failed like many black celebrities to make a public statement. He decried that one is damned if you do and damned if you don't. Do you really think people wanna hear from celebrities right now, he asked. Aren't the streets speaking for themselves, he says. But having been called out, he spoke and dropped a new stand-up even though he's talked about it in all of his stand-ups and he's talked about Black Lives Matters many times in the past. Not unlike many of us rabbis who've been speaking about these issues for years. Some people are saying, if you give one more Rosh Hashanah sermon about mass incarceration, um, I'm gonna walk out. The celebrity with the largest social media following Taylor Swift has been called out by her fans for not speaking more, despite that she's been really courageous in her political messages and that's cost her followers in her home state of Tennessee. And what would have happened if she did speak out? A white girl of privilege? Maybe she would have been accused of not listening? Maybe people would have said, do you think we really need your voice? So we in the Jewish community face the same dilemma. Do we jump in and commit the Jewish community to taking action for racial justice in our world? Or will we be accused on the left, perhaps, of someone on the left, not the left, of taking away the voices of others by inserting ourselves instead of listening? We have a history sometimes of that intersectionality mistake. But if we listen too much, maybe we're not caring, we're not taking issues seriously. Rabbi, I can't believe it took so long to send out an announcement. And if we speak out, someone will surely complain that some activists in the clearly just to be Black Lives Matters movement also embrace BDS, an organization that projects the American history of slavery and racial injustice on Israel, telling American youth that white Jews are oppressing the people of color Palestinians even though the history of that region deserves to be understood in its own truth. Didn't we know that the widespread accusation that Israelis trained the Minneapolis police to use the chokehold, that it was a lie spread by British BDS propaganda, because it was? And of course, we'll be accused of someone of losing our focus. Didn't we know a synagogue was vandalized or a Jewish owned business looted? Where was the email on that? So what I'm saying is, this is what Torah is telling us today, or telling me anyway. It's time for us to take our place with those courageous enough to speak and to act, knowing that we cannot control others' reactions and that our character will likely be impugned. It's time to join Miriam. We have known for a very long time that this country has never done any real teshuvah over building itself on the brutalized lives and bodies of black people on land stolen from massacred and defrauded Native Americans. We've been pointing out and expressing righteous indignation at this for our entire lives. Obviously, we've noticed mass incarceration of people of color essentially for the same crimes like cocaine possession as white people were not incarcerated for. We've, we've seen mass incarceration of black men for rape of white women without evidence. Massive underfunding and failure of public schools in predominantly black neighborhoods. We've seen jail time even today for failure to pay vagrancy and traffic fines, while white bankers see no jail time for market manipulation. We've seen systemic financial discrimination and the 
the, the list goes on and on. And we know we benefit from white privilege every day of our lives. Rashi was brave enough to tell us that black is beautiful, but I'm also happy he suffered beratement from Ibn Ezra and others for failing to go far enough. The Bekor Shur told us that interracial marriage and Jews of color were part of God's plan to unfold at a future time to send us a divine message. And all one lousy Ann Arbor rabbi can say is, he made me cringe. Maybe he's a little bit racist. Miriam stood up to demand justice for her black sister-in-law and became known for centuries as a racist gossip. Let's join them in being brave enough to fight for Black Lives Matters and for Jews of color, even knowing we'll be misunderstood and called out by someone who wants to pick apart our words and question the character of our leadership. Let Rashi's message ring in our ears. If one can suffer for speaking up for injustice with the best intentions, woe to those who speak up just to question another's leadership character. We must follow Miriam's example and speak up about the injustice to our black brothers and sisters and be silent no, and be silent no more, regardless of the consequences. <laughs>